Well, good morning, everybody. This morning, we're going to conclude our 10-week-long exposition or study of Paul's letter to those who are beloved of God in Rome of what is, without question, I think, probably the most influential letter that was ever written in all of history. I would even argue in all of literature that's ever been produced, this is the most important piece of literature. Uh, It's easily the most important book in the New Testament and probably in the entire Bible. Rob Quanchin mentioned it yesterday, but when when James Montgomery Boyce and his church, uh, 10th Press, studied this book on Sunday morning, uh, the last time they did that, he's deceased now, they spent six years in it. Uh, When John Piper, 239 sermons over eight years, when John Piper and his church at Bethlehem Baptist in Minnesota took on the book of Romans from the pulpit, they spent eight and a half years in it. Uh, and neither one of those churches took off too many Sundays either. But in any event, uh, it was back in August that I was uh, told that I had the caboose of this 10-week study. Uh, and the, the, the final two chapters, uh, 15 and 16 of the book, and that's where we'll be this morning uh, some. And to be honest with you, I wanted chapter 9. I didn't get it. <laughs> I am, after all, what I call a happy Calvinist. And uh, thank you, Bob. And nowhere in the Bible does the absolute sovereignty of God stand forth more beautifully than chapter 9 of the book of Romans. Mike Brees got that, deservedly so. Uh, and at the risk of feeding that pride problem that he mentioned when he was up here, uh, I think God will forgive me for this. Uh, he did a really wonderful job, I thought. So did the other guys, too. Um, but in any event, so um, when I found out where I was to be here, uh, of course, I immediately went to God and said, well, what, what would you have me, con- how would you have me conclude in a fitting way this most weighty of, piece of books, letters, parts of the Bible? And... Uh, What I think I heard God say to me was this, pretty clearly, conclude crossing study of the book of Romans uh, the exact same way that I inspired my bondservant Paul to conclude the book. Namely, glorify me, praise me, bring it on, Joe, bring it on, Crossing Community Church. Okay, Bob, you can put that up. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. That's Romans 16, 27, the last verse in the book. And to be honest with you, the B was not really even in the original. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, glory forever. Amen. So there it is. We're done. Let's pray. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) The fact that this God be glorified, that he get glory for himself, is the ultimate end of everything he has ever done. And it's the ultimate end of everything he's ever going to do in the future. And I'm going to make the case for that today, mainly from the book of Romans. Um, That's kind of what my message is this morning. And um, I, uh, I wish this was in my mind beautifully, but it's really not. Uh, We're not going to have any more. I'll do my best to stay off this and look at you as I go. We're not going to have any PowerPoint presentation. That was way too much for me. 
So you're going to need your Bibles. We're going to be, uh, if you have one, and if you have a phone, I always, it amazes me. You know, most places you go, they say, turn off your phones. But in church on Sunday morning, turn on your phones. Anyway, um, we're going to be in the book of Romans in chapter 15 and a little bit in chapter 9. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, and that's where we're going to go. So, <clears throat> what is this glory of God? Um, the Greek word is doxa. Uh, the Hebrew word looks like kavod, but apparently it's, it's pronounced kabod, that Paul ascribes to God in the final sentence of his letter. Uh, I, I think we would all agree uh, I, I, that God is already all glorious. I mean, why, why would Paul have to say, to God be glory? Um, and what role does the glory of God play in the book of Romans as a whole? I'm going to answer that question at the end of my little message here, if, they don't, if I don't get the hook first. I think we're okay. Um, do we need to try to define the glory of God or maybe describe it? It's not, it's not easy. Uh, it's kind of like describing beauty or something. My daughter and I just got back from uh, Yellowstone, and people say, what was, Yellow, how, what was Yellowstone like? Well, it's kind of hard to describe it. Although I know that if I asked Cindy Newman, she would probably have a perfect, beautiful ex- uh, de- definition and description of the glory of God right for us right now. Uh, well, I'm not going to let her do that. Well, we have this familiar statement on the glory of God from Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, one of the seraphim standing above the Lord, and he, and he hollers out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his, his holiness? No. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God's glory, whatever it is, is apparently not exactly synonymous with his holiness. And there is a link between this glory of God, whatever it is, uh, and every single thing you or I ever do or ever might, might want to do. And I refer, of course, to the command in an earlier letter from Paul to the church in Corinth, namely 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give me glory, God says, in the way you, you eat a meal, the way you drink a cup of coffee. If you go outside after church today to have a cup of coffee out in the whatever that room is called. Get me glory when you drive to work, when you participate in sports, when you fast or when you feast, the way, the way you get dressed and the way you put, up, put on makeup. I expect to be glorified in the way you work, in the way you play, in the way you travel, if you stay home, if you teach, or if you're a learner. Glorify me in the way you treat your wife, in the way you treat your parents, your son. Um, how you shop. You know, get me glory in your retirement at the office, whatever it might be. Whatever you do, all to the glory of God is the command. Um, I thought of one scene from a movie here, and I'm not sure anybody's seen it. I think most of you have. Uh, The movie is Remember the Titans. My my small group didn't even know about this movie, so I'm, I'm wondering. But how many have seen Remember the Titans? Okay, it's a good movie. It's about, uh, it's about a high school in Virginia, 1975. It's a true story that apparently had to be integrated. Uh, it was forced to integrate 
And the football team was good, and they had a black head coach and a white assistant coach. And because the, the black man was the head coach, there was this conspiracy to kind of knock the team down. They were undefeated. They were going on. They were a great team. And it, this, this fix was put in to uh, take a game away from them. They were making all these bad calls. You, you remember this? And uh, so uh, the, 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 the assistant coach, the white guy, I think his name was Yost in the movie, walks out to the referee who's making all these bad calls, and he says, I'm, you know, I know what you're doing. I'm going to get you. Uh, you, you know, this will, we'll get justice here. And he goes back to the sidelines, and he says, defense on me. Remember that, anybody? <laughs> Dave Yee, I know you didn't see the movie. Defense on me, okay? Um, the Romans, the book of Romans, Corinthians is God saying, glory on me, on me and only on me. Um, the fact is that the God who is revealed in the Bible is, is passionate when it comes to his glory, that his glory is seen, that it's displayed, that it's preserved and not shared with anybody. And go with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 48, okay? Isaiah 48, which is probably the most God-centered, God-exalting passage in the entire Bible, uh, beginning, in, beginning in verse 8. You have not heard, you have not known. Even from long ago, your ear has not been opened. Because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise, I restrain her for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? That wrath of God there is spoken of, if you remember, in Romans, the first chapter of Romans, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God that was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. God held that wrath back, ultimately not for you or for me. Like it says in verse 9, for the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And when it says for the sake of my name, that's really almost the exact same thing as saying for the sake of my glory. For my praise, I restrain it for you, is what God said. And yes, that's the same wrath that's spoken of here and in the book of Romans that God was willing to pour out onto his son, Jesus Christ, to have that wrath appeased or propitiated, a fancy word, on the cross at Calvary. God did that in the end, not for you or me, but for his glory. Like he says in verse 11, for my own sake I will act or accomplish This glory of God, which he proclaims and he, you know, is zealous for to preserve for himself, it figures prominently in the whole book of Romans. There's only three chapters where it's not really, it's talked about. But probably nowhere is its importance to God more revealing than in chapter one. And again, I hope you remember back to this, but you, you will recall there were three terrible exchanges that were made that are talked about in chapter one. You can go there if you want, but it may be just as easy to follow me. There were three terrible exchanges. In verse 26 and 27, it says, Both women and men exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. 
In verse 25, it says, Men exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worship created beings, usually themselves, rather than God. And then in verse 23, and this is probably the most heinous exchange or the, the, the worst one, it says, Man exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God for images in the form of corruptible man and of birds and animals and crawling creatures. A very bad, a very bad thing to do, a very dumb thing to do. Romans 3.23 is familiar to us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Literally, for all have sinned and lack the glory of God. Why do we lack the glory of God? Well, we lack the glory of God because we have all exchanged the glory of God for other things. That's what it says. Which means we have committed an outrageous crime against God. Uh, In chapter 4 of Romans... Abraham was able to grow strong in his faith by, quote, giving God the glory, verse 20. In, in chapter 5, Paul, and I'm going to go back to this at the end, Paul says that we who are being, we who are, have saving faith receive grace and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Exalt or praise, you know, we have praise, we have hope for the glory of God. And finally, before we get to chapter 15, there's Romans 9, 22, 23. Mike, sorry, I, I just had to go there a little bit. Uh, it's impossible, I think, to overstate this fact of the ultimacy of the glory of God in light of Romans 9, 22, 23. And go there if you would, okay? These two verses give the best answer, I think, to the question, if God really exists, this is the question that's out there today. This might be the biggest stumbling block, I think, for unbelievers. If God really exists, if he's sovereign over everything, why is the world the way it is? Why is there so much suffering and evil and destruction that seems to prevail? Um, Romans not, well, I got to get there now because uh, you're there and I'm not, and that's not good. Um, This is what it says in my Bible. <clears throat> he did so in order that he might make... No, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, the, fi- the, the, the final argument, the best answer for the righteousness of God in a world gone bad with so much evil and destruction is that God displayed his attributes of, of wrath and power as well as his mercy. You see it there? God has been willing to put up with the evil in the world, i.e. vessels of wrath, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand. Shoot, I mean, a couple verses earlier in Romans 9, in verse 17, Paul quotes from the book of Exodus, which said that God's very purpose in raising up Pharaoh was to demonstrate God's power, quote, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Think about that. God enslaved his chosen people in, in, in Egypt for all those years for the purpose, ultimately, of having his glory and his power displayed throughout the whole earth. Pharaoh was just his lackey doing his business. So you see why I say that the Lord God of heaven and earth 
is all about His glory. It is huge with Him. You know, texts like these in Romans, they cast a vision for God that His glory would, should be like the highest, tre- the highest value that we have. Like, we should treasure it more than anything else. Uh, okay, in the beginning of chapter 15, we'll get there now, finally, Paul is finishing his handling of how um, weak and strong Christians should relate to one another in the church. That really is what chapter 14 of the book was all about. Um, let's, read, let's read Romans 15, 1 through 9, okay? If we could. If you can get there. Romans 15. We'll read the first nine verses. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that though perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives a perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that would be the Jews, on behalf of the truth of of God, to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then he goes on to quote a bunch of texts from the Old Testament. Um, what, what we have here is Paul explaining to this young church in Rome the very purpose of the church and how the Lord Jesus set the pattern or the example for how to build that church. And the purpose is in, in verses 5 and 6, that we with the same mind, with one accord, and I take that to mean unified, uh, in one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, I think we all know to glorify God to, is to bring to light, to make much of, we like to say, God's glory, his awesomeness, and his power. This church service that you're sitting in right now, this morning, Sun Country with Betty downstairs for our kids, the small groups that form in our church here all over the place, the congregational care ministry that is so ably handled by the Walshes and everybody, all of them exist for one ultimate purpose, to make much of the glory of God. That's what it says right here in black and white. The aim of the church, the aim of this building and God's church, Christ's church, and that includes us, is to display the glory of God. That's what, that's what the Bible says. Crossings, our, our stated mission here, you can look at it in the Bible, uh, the Bible, sorry, the bulletin, uh, is to be and to make committed disciples of Christ. I'm not quibbling with the elders. That's a great mission, but it's a little bit truncated. Our goal here is to be, is to be and to make committed disciples of Christ to the glory of God. That's the ultimate reason. Uh, to be and to make committed disciples of Christ for the sake of the name. That's the ultimate aim of the the Son, Christ our Lord. It's all over the Gospels. Uh, Jesus was all about uh, 
glorifying his Father. It was the ultimate aim of Paul when he wrote this letter, and I'm not just referring to the last verse, and that's the ultimate aim. It should be the ultimate aim of every disciple of Christ. And I can refer you back to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. One voice, one mindset, together glorifying the God who set the heavens, Psalm 19.1, and whose glory, we're told, fills the whole, the whole world, the whole universe, the whole, even all those planets they're trying to find that may have people living on them. There's more talk of the glory of God in, in verse 7 of Romans 15. Uh, you know, it begins with another wherefore, wherefore. And what's, what's the wherefore referred to there? That to display the glory of God is the aim of the church. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. What's the behavior that Paul is looking for? What's, what's the behavior he's stressing here? Obviously, it's, it's welcoming, accepting. Uh, we're to be receiving, sacrificially loving others. That's what he's after here. Um, look around, when you and not just when you come here on Sunday morning. Um, when you go home, when you come and go, uh, welcome each other. Be accepting. Receive other people into your space, into your lives. I mean, you might recall in Romans 12, 13, there's the command to be hospitable. Uh, hospitality is important to God. And, and notice something here. The, t- the text moves very seamlessly from verse 1, talking about the weak and the strong in the church, to uh, talking about uh, the Jews and the Gentiles in verses 8 and 9. The issue is really the same for both. Welcome one another. I think it's fair to conclude that what Paul is pressing for here in verse 7 and 8 and 9 is not just, not just uh, you know, an accepting, acceptance of uh, each other here, uh, but rather, you know, accept and welcome each other across ethnic and racial lines. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, cross the aisle, cross, cross over the Bucks County line into Philadelphia or into Trenton or whatever, you know, and yes, cross over the railroad tracks from the white neighborhood to the black neighborhood, to the poor neighborhood, or the hood as they call it, and do it like everything else we're to do for the glory of God. I have one little aside here. I'm going to do it. I wasn't sure if I had time. I think it's kind of obvious in the last year or so that we have, we have a serious problem. We have a racial divide in our country that's quite evident. And, you know, no, nobody, our, our, our increasingly secular government, they, they don't know what to do about it. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, think they, I think they asked this question at the first debate and the last of candidates, you know, and you'll, you'll get the same drivel, you know. Oh, we should have, we should respect We've got to respect, more, uh, respect each other more, uh, more law and order, whatever it might be. They, just, they don't have an answer for it. They don't have an answer for it. The answer is really is here. And we're called to accept one another. This is the important part. We're, we're called to accept one another, to love one another, to be hospitable to each other, not just for the sake of accepting one another and loving one another and be receiving of one another. I mean, the aim is to point that person to our glorious God. Jesus said the exact same thing when he was talking about the good works, you know, that we were all created to do. Uh, He said, um, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Anybody finish it? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
Matthew 5.16. You re read the last six chapters on the, of the Gospel of John. Jesus was all about getting glory for his Father. That's, um, and, in this, and in this text, finally, Paul gives the very reason why we're to be accepting a unified body of believers, uh, the ultimate reason, I would say. He says, accept one another, in verse 7, again, whether you're Jew, Gentile, Arab, whatever, whoever God puts in your life, accept that person, welcome that person to the glory of God, for I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And here it is, for the Gentiles, or the nations, to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. And that's all over the Old Testament. Think about that for a minute. Now, Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost, right? To give his life as a ransom for many. And he did that, certainly. But that was, maybe, maybe you won't agree with me here, that was not the ultimate reason he came. That's a given right here. The ultimate reason he came was to glorify his father by proving him faithful. That would certainly glorify his father to his promises and to be praised or glorified among the nations for his mercy. And that's why this church, is, uh, which I've been here for a long time, like Tim said, will be an evangelistic church until the cows come home, if I have anything to do about it. That's why we do missions here. That's why we support missionaries. That's why we do outreaches. That's why Brubaker and the Columbos dragged these cannons all over creation every other Saturday, it seems like. I don't know how they do it. That's why we talk about a church plant once in a while, if God would allow. Uh, that's why this church even exists, it, it, to make much of God in order that as many as possible might be reached and in turn they might glorify God for his mercy. That mercy that was best demonstrated, of course, when he sent his son to die for us on that cross on a garbage heap outside of Jerusalem. Okay. That brings me back, brings us back to where I started the closing doxology, which is up there, Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Paul has said everything he knows to say by this point of the book. He's done, he's done explaining, he's done defending, he's done teaching, confirming, exhorting, whatever he's doing. It's just worship now, okay? To God and to, to the Son be glory forevermore. I asked the question at the beginning of this me message, what, what is the role that the glory of God plays in the book of Romans as a whole? Well, I hope we've seen it now, okay? It's kind of like the heavens, you know, do God's bidding in terms of, you know, effusing his glory. Well, the book of Romans is doing God's bidding, calling out to us, his created beings, behold my glory. That's, that's his purpose for the book. That's God's ultimate invincible purpose for the whole shooting match for the world. That his supremacy in all things, in creation, in election, in his gospel, in the redemption of those who believe in him, that all his excellencies, that all his perfections would just be fully on display and marveled at and praised and, yes, worshipped. And that, by the way, is the definition of the glory of God, if you missed it. So, my prayer for our church here this morning, and I, I hope you're going to pray this with me, 
is that God would make that the atmosphere here at Crossing Community Church and the time that we have left here. I think we'll succeed here, and I think we'll be sustained here. I know, I think God will. When we're known as a bunch of people that are just really into the glory of God being displayed. It's like uh, uh, I came across uh, Acts 2.43, where it says that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe with the glory of God. If our kids down in Sun Country actually kind of talk about the glory of God, if they think about it, I mean, if our teens love the glory of God more than they love sports or music or being liked on Facebook or whatever else they're liked on or all that kind of stuff, um, if guys like me and women like uh, us career people who pursue the glory of God more than we pursue, you know, successful careers or being known as a prominent lawyer or a prominent educator or prominent doctor or whatever, that sort of thing. That our older people, and I think I'm in this category too, but I'm in a couple categories. Yes, that our older people and even, yes, even our seriously ill people, deathly ill people, would like those Romans in, like the, the yeah, like the Romans in chapters one and two, that they would exult in the in the hope of the glory of God, which might be you know around the corner. Maybe we need to make the ask that Moses made in uh, Exodus thirteen thirty three eighteen. Moses said, "Show me your glory." Not a bad thing to ask. So let's do that. And, um, and Paul, come up and we'll, we'll sing a little bit more to the glory of God, okay? All right. Well, Lord, that's it. That, that's my prayer. I just said it. My, my prayer would be that this, this would be a local body of believers who, who love you, who adore you, who can't praise you enough, and more than anything else want to see your glory displayed in them, in their lives, as we go about the business that you left us with here. Um, like your son, we want, to, we want to bring glory to the Father, and we want to glorify the Son too, um, who sustains all things, and from whom, to him, to whom, and for whom, all things are for the glory of God. And, of course, we ask it in Christ's name this morning. Amen.